Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to this week's episode of Mill Liberty. I'm your host, Caleb Franz. This is the voice of liberty for a new generation. I'm thrilled to have you here this week. Uh, I am also thrilled to be back this week. Uh, I was out for a week last week, but we did have a show last week. Stephen Perkins uh, filled in for me, and he had a great topic and great conversation, not all of which I entirely agreed with. However, let it be known that I would... (laughs) I, I don't try to silence other people's opinions on this show, um, but he did raise several several good points about uh, libertarianism and uh, the Libertarian Party in general. But this week, we are closing out our summer interview series. Um, it has been a really great series, I think. We've had uh, quite a few great guests and uh, some some great uh, participation with, with those guests and great feedback uh, from you all. But today we're going to close it out. And our final interview in this series is with Matt Welch. He is the editor-at-large at Reason and uh, just a all-around great guy to, to talk with. And and uh, you'll, of course, get to hear some of that. You'll, you'll get to hear some of his, his background and his story and his take on some of, the, some of the things that is going around the world today. So without further ado, please sit back and enjoy my interview with Matt Welch. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Liberty this week. Uh, we have Matt Welch, who is the editor-at-large of Reason Magazine with us. Matt, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you coming on. Um, so for starters, I would like for you to, for those who, who may not know, give a little bit of your background and how, how you came into being uh, where you are right now with Reason. Sure. Uh, kind of a circuitous path. Uh, I uh, lived in Central Europe in the 1990s uh, there just after the fall of communism. I was fortunate enough to be 21 years old when the wall fell. Oh, that's fun. And had a pretty bleak future uh, due to um, self-inflicted uh, damage uh, to my uh, body and mind. Uh, it was expelled from college and whatnot. And so I took a one-way ticket to Europe to hang out with um, uh, partying uh, revolutionaries who were my age and had just overthrown communism. I think that I thought that might be fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, ended up with some pals of mine from the college paper uh, starting what was the first uh, independent post-communist English-language newspaper in the former communist bloc which doesn't quite fit on a business card, but, uh, you know, you can impress your friends kind of thing. And um, ended up living out there for eight years, uh, four in Prague, one in Bratislava. I was uh, covered the first year of independence of Slovakia and three in Budapest. And um, I would, I did not ever self-describe as a libertarian back then. I uh, considered myself, and in many ways still do consider myself a journalist first, um, but felt very uh, deeply of the sway of the writings uh, Václav Havel, one of the great anti-totalitarian uh, writers, thinkers, and actors out there, uh, literally speaking, as well as uh, as figuratively in terms of uh, his uh, great actual works. And uh, a lot of what he said to me resonated. And there's this, there's a tradition in ch- Central Europe, like Central Europe liberals, by their uh, uh, phraseology, kind of similar to what we would call classical liberals here. And by we, I mean like a handful of people because nobody <laughs> uses those terms anymore uh, outside of a few mostly libertarian circles. Um, but uh, it just sort of made sense to me that you don't want the government 
I mean, I saw the wreckage of what happens when the government runs everything. And this is wreckage that, uh, you know, you see the censorship. Your friends who listen to, like the same music that you do, except they would go to jail because of it. They would have their records broken because of it. They had to go to the government authority to get their band a name approved and their set list approved. I mean, just stuff that boggles the mind was happening to people my age. Um, and uh, so you saw that aspect of it. And then also the place was wrecked. It was ruined. Everything was dark. It was uh, filthy, polluted. Uh, you'd go to the store. The store was called Store, and there was nothing for sale in it. <laughs> um, uh, and so, like, it was this great thing. All these liberals, I was from uh, UC Santa Barbara, and I have a lot of, a lot of uh, friends who were super lefty. I um, mean, they're part of uh, the committee in solidarity the people of El Salvador, CISPIS, which is a big thing in the 80s, uh, and they would come out and see the, the immediate wreckage of applied uh, communism, and they're like, whoa, <laughs> uh, maybe i got to reconsider some stuff. Uh, so uh, it, it made sense to me to be in a place where, like, hey, I don't want the government telling me what I can or can't listen to, can or can't smoke or drink or imbibe and whatever, uh, and they shouldn't have a central role in the economy. Um and all this sort of makes uh, sense to me, and it's more fun that way. And I figured that in the intervening eight years that I was outside of uh, United States of America, that with the end of the Cold War, that America would be going through its own kind of Truth and Reconciliation Commission or something, where they would say, okay, look, you know what? Uh, like on the Bernie Sanders left, look, we went a bit too far with the whole Contra thing, uh, not Contra thing, actually, uh, more like Sandinista thing. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, we made too much fun of Reagan when he used the phrase like evil empire. And on the right, they would say, yeah, you know what, that whole apartheid thing, we probably shouldn't have been apologizing for it. Like there'd be there. And there's a lot of censorship fights that, uh, that ran through these cold war, uh, uh, kind of, uh, fault lines. And so I just figured that people would have sorted that out. And that as a result, that there would be space for the kind of politics that I identified as Central European liberal politics and kind of like, sadly, actual Central European liberal politics, which withered on the vine pretty quickly, it, the, nothing like that was in America. Uh, um, and those conversations didn't really take place, uh, sadly, uh, into uh, a kind of lasting detriment. And so eventually enough people uh, were uh, began telling me that I was a libertarian, uh, that I accepted the phrase to be uh, to be put it. upon me. Yeah. Um, I started, uh, I, I did a lot of journals, a lot of different places. Uh, I wrote my first piece for Reason not long after 9-11. I had, uh, I was part of the kind of original post 9-11 wave of, uh, of bloggers uh, that happened there. Uh, and that was, as uh, Andrew Sullivan called me back then, but the previously unknown Matt Welch, which I thought, always thought was pretty great. Um, <laughs> And so I worked for I've worked for Reason off and on uh, more more or less since 2003. I had a couple years detour over at the LA Times opinion section, and uh, I was editor in chief of the magazine Reason um, between 2008 and about a year ago. Uh, and now I'm editor at large, which means I get some time talking with you and flapping around the world and and trying to make media and and write and report as much as I can. Uh, would you say then that 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 time um, in in post-communist Europe uh, had the biggest impact of influence then in your in your ideology in your worldview probably and it's and it's curious and probably even more curious than even a conversational uh, podcast can can get us to because part of the insights of Václav Havel <coughs> sorry I'm a little bit uh, rheumatic here um, 
he was very allergic to ideology itself, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he was he was a very sensitive writer, as was George Orwell, who I think is his best analog in terms of the essay and the kind of the thought of anti-totalitarianism and the importance, the centrality of truth. Uh, Havel, uh, you know, one of his uh, great collections is called Living in Truth. He always spoke about living within the truth and how uh, in, in very prescient essays, uh, an open letter to Gustav Husak and The Power of the Powerless, um, of these incredible mid-70s things that kind of documented, predicted how communism would fall, um, he would point out that this whole system is based on lies that everybody participating in it knows are lies. That's kind of the point, is to rub your nose in it, is to make you put the sign up in the in the window at your grocery, where again, there's no groceries, um, saying workers of the world unite, even though you kind of don't know what it means. It's just forced uh, display of ritual. And he argued from the mid-70s on that if we just insist on calling things by their proper names, on living in truth, that way we undo the ideology and we reveal this whole superstructure of lies and once people start uh, exercising that freedom they won't be able to tolerate this and the whole thing will come unravel quicker than anyone could possibly imagine and his prediction turned out to be true which is crazy to think about and it's and it's that blueprint and some of the other ways that, that they did it through charter 77 and and other things has been uh, uh, since copied elsewhere but um you know part of his point was that ideology itself is the problem. I don't necessarily believe that. I believe that pretty strongly in the 90s. Um, and uh, and part of me still, you know, chafes up against that. I, I, I have a real uh, big problem being identified, you know, in the movement, or even like as a royal we. It was when I became the editor in chief of Reason, it was a big uh, struggle with me, like the one struggle, because I've always loved Reason and was a very attracted to the kind of a space that especially Nick Gillespie helped create and Virginia Postrelbo. Mm -hmm. For him, <laughs> excuse me. Um, uh, but like that was, I, w I was worried about that royal we and uh, in the ways that I fit in and didn't fit in uh, to that. I got over it uh, uh, pretty quickly. But I, I, I'm always allergic to the idea that people will affiliate tribally first and not rationally first. And I think within libertarianism, I predict that this conversation might get into some of these fault lines. There within libertarianism, there are people who kind of lead with the ideology. And then there are people who sort of lead with the discovery process, and they're uh, oftentimes in conflict with each other and, and sometimes in very bitter conflict with, with each other. And I think we're seeing some of that right now kind of in the fault lines having to do with the alt-right and, and related conversations. So, yes, that, that shaped me a lot, even though part of what it shaped me, I've, I've come to kind of twist. And now I look for ways in which... And this is especially I've written about the media and was a media columnist for a long time. Um, ways in which uh, people who describe themselves as non-ideological or just you know, pragmatist problem solvers—this is the default position of most of my colleagues in the fields of journalism—they think that they're not ideological, and yet they're totally ideological. They're, they're, yeah, the idea that we must do something is right. a very ideological thing in ways that libertarians understand, but very few other people do. So I've kind of I've, I've morphed these. The Havel thing as a way to look in ways which uh, even Havel's own point of view, and sadly late in his life, uh, it clouded his own judgment, I believe, uh, in the way that he uh, 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 applied that in his analysis of world events. Um, that that leads to a very interesting segue because um, I, I've had other individuals in media on this show before, and, and I've, I've discussed this, um, how it a term that bothers me is is unbiased journalism. 
Like, like every journalist has some sort of bias, even belie- believing in, in free speech or free press uh, is, is a bias in and of itself. Um, but most will, will not try to, to label their bias or, or try to pretend like, you know, they're, they're at least putting it aside for the moment. Um, I'm curious, though, if you think that there is any room for, for the bias of liberty still in the media today as it stands, especially uh, in the era of, of Trump. There's a couple of, uh, of, of uh, different uh, interesting strings to push on there. One is that, so when I was at the LA Times uh, opinion section, uh, you know, I was writing and editing editorials and, and these kind of things after being a longtime critic of uh, my hometown paper there, so it was kind of funny. Uh, but uh, one of the first things that I did was say, all right, um, why don't we, in the name of transparency, which is surely a virtue that we all agree on, of course, right here, right. Um, Let's publish bios of every member of the editorial board who are writing, sitting around at some star chamber and and uh, handing down pronouncements about how the world should work. Here's your little bio with a picture and um, track record, links to stuff that you've written, and also who you voted for uh, in previous elections. Maybe just limit it to presidential. I'll I'll go first. Here we go. And oh boy. <laughs> people <laughs> run screaming for the exits. This is very curious. To this day, I've been, uh, you know, uh, rattling this cage now for 15, 20 years. I think my first piece for reason uh, trying to shame people into doing this was in 2002 or three. Uh, and reason has been, at least since 2004, disclosing um, or asking its uh, staffers and uh, main contributors uh, to. Uh, disclose who they plan on voting for in presidential elections. And some of them say, you know, get get bent. I don't have to tell you anything. Uh-huh. And we don't force them to. But uh, we're still lonely. There's like three publications that do it. Uh, Slate uh, does it. We do it. Deadspin, just because I started screaming about it for some reason. A guy, a friend of mine who was the editor over there, Tim Marchman, said, all right, screw it. We're going to do it too. Um, but... Uh, uh, it's amazing how much they don't want to live by their own rules, partly because uh, they are afraid of what we all kind of suspect to be true, which is that if you posted 25 bios out there, you'd get 24 Democrats, or at least 24 people going to vote for the Democrat, right. which is kind of true in the case of Slate.com. <coughs> excuse me. So, um, yes, uh, it's, it's interesting that this applied transparency, uh, they run from it, and the people who are running from it are precisely those people who are, you know, most journalists are, are savvy enough to say, hey, look, I don't claim that there's no bias here, um, but that what we're trying to do is get to some kind of ideal of fairness. And, you know, people like uh, most libertarians and, and most people who look at the world more ideologically oftentimes scoff at that. And I would like to push back a little bit. I want there to be people who are striving for an unattainable uh, objective of fairness. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that makes for better journalism. I think that makes for better science. Uh, I think that's kind of the scientific method. Um, but I want them to all those same people who are doing that to also be more open to the fact that a lot of uh, truth advancement gets done by people who are explicitly biased. There was a, uh, a case, for example, about two years ago, the New York Times, I live in New York now, and subscribe to it. And a lot of like the subtext of the New York Times when you read on a daily basis, and of course it's a great newspaper and it's also a, an infuriating and flawed newspaper. Uh, right. 
but they have this they, they have a subtext of like here's this thing that all of you upper middle class people liberals enjoy but should feel guilty about whether it's your Amazon subscription, <laughs> you know, uh, and the people toiling in the salt mines of uh, to put your your uh, your iPhone together. Uh, in this case, it was a series about nail salons. Like people go to cheap nail salons, staffed mostly by Asian immigrants, but they should really feel badly about it. And we have this great reporter, uh, longtime New Yorker Jim Epstein, um, who basically re-reported the the piece. And interviewed people who'd been interviewed completely in translation, um, and then said that their uh, their interview was was um, inverted uh, the the meaning of like the the reporter based a ton of stuff on like the wording of a classified advertisement that she got completely wrong. It's an amazing piece of re-reporting and unpacking that they did this when the story came out. People were like, "Oh, this is Pulitzer uh, material," and it most defiantly was not. And the reason why it's not. It's because of the work that Jim Epstein did. Uh, as part of that process, uh, so we, we widely publicly uh, uh, called in serious question into the reporting on this. Like translations were wrong, sources were screwed, things that were alleged weren't true, and also there were negative effects happening because of the reporting. The people that they aimed to protect in the reporting now uh, could no longer have jobs because of the way the New York was re reacting to the series. And so we were wondering when the New York Times public editor, back when they had such things, um, was going to respond. Um, they eventually did, uh, weeks, weeks later, and it was fascinating. The public editor did a very good uh, and, and thorough piece saying this series is questionable and so on, but interviewing their editor-in-chief, Dean Baquet, who I had the misfortune to work with when I was at the LA Times, um, he or someone under him, but in the newsroom, basically came out and said that because reason has an ideological bias against regulation, we didn't take these things seriously. Um, and that to me is, is almost the exact opposite approach that a news gathering organization should take, and yet uh, they do all the time, which is to say they don't understand how biased people can uh, unpack the bias of people who claim to be unbiased. Um, right, and right. that's an important part of the discovery process. It's frustrating to me I, on some level of like, journalistic um, idealism. I wish that all great journalism came from people who all strived for this mythical idea of fairness because that would sort of square to some degree with what I was uh, raised in in this profession. But it's just not so. People are motivated um, by conflicts and by tribalism and these kind of things, and it oftentimes gets them there. The people who, who expose Dan Rather for getting stuff wrong about uh, George W. Bush, you know, allegedly evading the, the draft or whatever that was way back. And um, those people were ideologically motivated and they were right. And you can't, and to dismiss them uh, out of hand uh, from the beginning is wrong. On the other hand, a lot of the people and a lot of the uh, even journalistic ecosystems that arise in opposition to the implicit biases of the supposedly unbiased journalism profession they do not spend enough time uh, learning how to get, get stuff right. So I think you see a greater error rate at places like Breitbart.com, uh, sadly at uh, Fox News, a building I used to work in, um, and, and other places like that. Uh, they tolerate uh, a lot more error uh, in the name of, uh, of, of kind of uh, pugilism, and I think that that undercuts their arguments. <laughs> and I should I should make myself clear that I, I, I do believe in truth in journalism. However, um, I, I think people often confuse the two for being truthful and being unbiased, and they're not necessarily always one and the same.
Correct. Um, but speaking of bias, I would like to talk about a little bit of uh, bias on the right, or maybe maybe a little bit of defensiveness on the right. Um, after the recent um, events in Charlottesville, a lot of people, um, especially in the alt right, but not exclusively, uh, went to not necessarily defend, but just revert to whataboutism whenever they're talking about, you know, like Nazis and white supremacists. Um, why is it that you think it is so difficult to just, when, when they see wrong people on one side, regardless of what side it is, why is it so difficult for them to just say, you know what, this is wrong and, and we're going to stand against it and we're not going to point to the other side and stand in against something that's so painfully obvious to be wrong. I think that, uh, part of this is that, um, uh, kind of the, what's the, the right term of art, um, anti-media bias bias <laughs> or people who are, I mean, Donald Trump, uh, yeah. gave a rally in Phoenix last night and the first half of it, um, was, uh, a broad attack on the, on the media. There was, you know, five minutes after he said, our movement is about love. He was like, see those reporters over there right. pointing at them. Uh, they're, li <laughs> they're liars. They're fake news. They make stuff up. I, I think that they don't like the country. Um, they're turning off their cameras, which was just a lie. They weren't, they never showed the crowd size. He said, as they showed the crowd size. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, so I mean the, the one thing, the one uh, like value holding together what uh, uh, little there is held together of conservatism in this country is antipathy towards the media. Um, and so uh, in that, you're going to get a lot of sense of if the media is all saying X, then I am going to say anti-X. I mean, you get a lot of people who uh, like or defend Donald Trump because he has, quote, all the right enemies, unquote, which is mm -hmm. – uh, I think just a recipe for terrible thinking and also giving latitude toward to people in power to do bad things to you. Um, uh, it's a, it's a bad way of thinking. That's part of that pathologies that you look at. But, but I also think <coughs> that there's, um, uh, and I'm not saying this as a way to call people who do this themselves, racist, alt-right, Nazi or whatever, but there is an overlapping, uh, both worldview and, uh, uh, I would say kind of mindset um, that uh, there's a commonality between the Richard Spencers of the world and Donald Trump and Steve Bannon and, and Sebastian Gorka and Some Tucker Carlson and sympathize with. And, and that is this sense. It's a little bit of an apocalyptic sense that the big tell is whenever Donald Trump or Steve Bannon says, if we don't do X, if we don't you know, reduce our trade deficit with Mexico, mm -hmm. which is how Trump put it in this conversation with the Mexican president earlier this year, then we're not going to have a country. Mm -hmm. If we don't do X about immigration or this about refugees from Syria, then we're not going to have a country. We're going to have a country. Right. There's no way in hell <laughs> we're not going to have a country. But it's this apocalyptic sense that the the, the values that we have, this the, our notion of identity, whatever that is, it's an American identity. For a, a white nationalist, it's much more explicitly a white nationalist identity. But it is similarly... Uh, a sense of of insecurity about who we are, um, and that it can be easily, um, you know, and and kind of permanently rolled back by a combination combination of feckless uh, elites in America who are rootless cosmopolitans who don't really care about the same values that we care about, um, and then 
third world or second world uh, ne'er-do-wells or just people who don't share our culture for whatever reason. That's a pretty common feeling on on the broad right. Uh, there's a version of it on the left, too. I think there's an apocalyptic strain that's also on the rise. The Bernie Sanders strain is very much has elements of that when people are going on about oligarchy and the Koch brothers run everything and all that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, but the one on the right has this sense that the West is imperiled uh, here and it's, you know, possibly on our last legs and, and feel very defensive. And so when they see people who, who speak in that same language, even though they're also kind of Nazis, um, and then they see the media who they loathe and they suspect as being part of that feckless cosmopolitan elite who don't really give a shit about American values, then uh, that's how you get get to a place where you equivocate and you go for the whataboutism and you go for the counterpunch. And I think it's been kind of a wake-up call uh, in Charlottesville because there wasn't anything nice about that rally. You no, know, no. I mean, there, was, there weren't very fine people on, on both sides of it. As, uh, they as the just weren't said. very fine people uh, at right. all. And, uh, and this was obvious to anyone paying attention pension uh going forward it should i mean the president was saying like hey i saw the same pictures you did and i you know i study this very closely believe me um i'd like to see what he studied because i've seen no evidence that that rally was anything but uh, uh a white supremacist uh explicitly sort of cultural nationalism crapola and uh and it produced what it produced and it's uh it should be a wake-up call to everybody do you think that part of it is that just some people are just so anti uh left that not not necessarily uh for liberty or for x you know fill in the blank but they're just so against um the left that that it's it's blinding to them well sure um and there's another thing that that happens in addition to this sort of apocalyptic uh, insecurity that I mentioned there too. There's a collectivism of hatred in this country, or collectivism of antipathy, if you like a soft word. <clears throat> and again, right and left both, both do this, and libertarians do this too, many of them, um, where as soon as you find yourself saying, well, the left does this, or the right does this, or even libertarians do this, and that this is a negative thing, check yourself. You're engaging in collectivism. It's a collectivism of hatred, uh, or antipathy. Again, um, this election last presidential election was arguably the most collectivist election in terms of the two leading candidates. You had, on one hand, a uh, Democratic side candidate talking about how, you know, I forget what the percentage was, uh, but a whole bunch of people on, on voting for Donald Trump are in the basket full of deplorables. They are irredeemably awful, uh, sure. is, is what her point uh, was there. And then I don't doubt that some of those people, particularly in Charlottesville, are awful and I never want to see them for the rest of my life, except when they're crying on their YouTube videos, because um, it's funny. Be honest about that. Um, but uh, and then on Donald Trump's uh, side, and for me this was one of many things that was uh, dis disqualifying uh, about him, the way he talked about Judge Curiel uh, being uh, there's no chance that he would be able to effect administrate uh, uh, a real justice because of his Mexican heritage. This is a collectivist. Uh, 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 accusation against somebody, that's a dark place uh, right. that we've gotten to in this country. And people are motivated. I mean, I, I think one of the biggest surprises <clears throat> about the election was that even though third parties did better than they have since 1996, that they still didn't do better. And I think part of it is that people voted uh, against uh, people. <laughs> and uh, and that is that. A, yeah. still a pretty 
pretty powerful motivator out there, and it's bad. And and I and I uh, tell this to libertarian audiences all the time. Um, uh, you watch it in yourself. Uh, there's definitely an apocalyptic strain of libertarianism. There is definitely uh, mm -hmm. a, a collectivist strain when libertarians gather and talk about the forces that are at agitated against them uh, in, in the world, which are vast and many. Um, and when you get to that place where you're making collectivist uh, statements about huge, broad swaths of individuals, that's not a good place to be. Um, so I, I want to shift just slightly um, to the, the president's speech the other night on Afghanistan. And a lot of people were, especially a lot of Trump people, because I remember um, a lot of the justifications that people made for voting for Trump in the election was that, well, he is the the more peaceful candidate out of the two, which, I mean, to some degree, they, they had uh, some merits in that argument. Um, but as we have seen, and as we have seen in past elections, that this is not the case, and, and now we are um, going to continue America's longest war in history and people were were surprised by by that, um, but it's it's really not so surprising whenever you you look at that. Why is it that um, people were just completely blinded by this, even though that uh, some of some of the points in his language and and history can point to the fact that um, it was very clear that this war wasn't going to end, even with with a president like Trump. Well. Um, I would uh, slightly dispute one of your characterizations, which is to say that I do believe that Trump is less or will be less interventionist than Hillary Clinton would be. I think she's about the most hawkish uh, Democrat that we have out mm -hmm. there, with a notable exception of North Korea. Uh, I think she's less hawkish than he, but uh, in most other uh, places <clears> – <throat> This is a woman who is still describing throughout the campaign without batting an eye uh, Libya intervention, which she was the main driver uh, for in the administration, the Obama administration, as smart power at its best. Um, sure. This catastrophic, um, you know, chaos causing um, intervention. Um, I'll be generous among our uh, anti-war libertarian friends who decided to get excited about Donald Trump as the peace uh, candidate. Um, I'll be momentarily generous, um, momentarily, right. which is to say that when you hold one ideal, when you've been working mostly and, and most um, committedly about one idea for uh, most of your sort of public life career, and and many anti-war libertarians have been doing this for a long time, much more than I have. I don't I don't uh, define myself first as anti-war. Uh, and then libertarian, or it's not, it's not, it's not like a primary drive, a, you know, the primary driving virtue in what I do. And a lot of people um, with, I guess, some justification will say that to that my libertarian credentials should be questioned as a result. Well, Matt, there's only one um, true libertarian. So, thank you. That's, that's, that's very true. We all know who that is, Bill Maher. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Uh, uh, so, like, if you've been working on this your whole life, uh, you're just you're desperate for any sign of life right. out there. And uh, Donald Trump, in, he won the military state of South Carolina by saying that the Bush family brought us wars that were a total disaster and nation-building exercises that were a total disaster. That's pretty refreshing language. Mm -hmm. um, for people who are much uh, uh, angrier about NATO existing than I am, and my view there is really, 
really way off the libertarian reservation, in part because I lived in Eastern Europe and I, and I saw the uh, expansion of NATO and I covered that in real time and have a much different view than most Americans do on it as a result. But if you've been working against NATO uh, as a thing, you're glad to see someone campaign questioning um, why do we need this, uh, you know, 70-year-old organization for Don't we have some mission creep? Shouldn't people be paying more, um, pulling their own weight? I mean, he kept saying in the campaign, our allies need to do more. And he's damn right about that. Absolutely damn right about that. So he made a lot of statements that were refreshing in an American context. He also said a lot of crap. Um, you know, this is the pig's blood story, which is total bullshit about General Pershing in the Philippines that was debunked constantly in real time. And he kept saying it anyways, because, you know, because because YOLO, um, yeah. wow. uh, <laughs> uh, you know, he tried to strike this Jacksonian uh, stance of like, we're just going to, you know, eradicate those guys and take all their oil. So he found a way to sell it in kind of bloodthirsty ways. But he was still. Uh, in many ways, the least interventionist major uh, candidate, uh, major party candidate in a good long time. So you can see that. That is my generous reading of that. I wrote a piece for Reason uh, 2016, uh, you know, April or so, um, saying Trump is not the peace candidate. And one of the arguments that I made there is not just that that those kind of like uh, Jacksonian flourishes were problematic, but also, and I think this is important and people forget about this, um, and there are applications outside of, of foreign policy intervention, too. If you show no real knowledge of uh, foreign policy, <laughs> yeah, you show no demonstrated a, interest. Point. And I'm not being I'm, I'm trying not to be a, a, a jackass about this. I mean, George W. Right. Bush, despite the fact that his dad ran the CIA and was the president and, <laughs> and all this other kind of stuff, did not show a lot of interest um, an active knowledge about the world as he ran for president. And he ran, uh, again, as someone for a hum more, more humble foreign policy against nation building. He was running against a neocon warmonger, John McCain, at the time. Uh, but if you go in there without knowledge of this, just kind of an instinct, and even if that instinct is good, um, you are going to be overwhelmed by two things. Um, uh, three things. Uh, the uh, the awesome, uh, responsive, awesome and terrible responsibility and power of the office of course you know um you're gonna look at something oh look there's a problem hey we've got the world's biggest hammer why don't we use it to solve the problem um it's right. it's irresistible in all kinds of ways you're also going to come uh, across uh an establishment of kind of a bipartisan establishment which has definitely reasserted itself on trump's foreign policy that has these ideas about america's uh, primacy and centrality to uh the making the world safe for democracy um and so uh, you better come up with if, if you're really going to engage in this kind of more humble foreign policy, you better go to a, 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 a develop a bench, develop a leadership team of people who been thinking and studying about foreign policy from an anti-interventionist or an intervention skeptic point of view for a long time and are really smart about it. Uh, problem is, there aren't that many. I mean, a lot of anti-war commentary in this country is batshit crazy. Um, and that includes on the libertarian side, uh, I say much to my disappointment because I sh share a lot of their basic critiques and skepticism about interventionism. And they have actually taught me a lot, including, you know, uh, my I've, I've walked back previous support for various policies uh, in part back uh, based on what they have shown me. But th their mastery and knowledge of foreign affairs is is rough. George W. Bush, when and this is the third thing that happens, there's always something terrible that happens. 
And when that terrible thing happens, you're going to reach around, you're going to grab for the hammer, and you're going to ask, okay, who, who knows the mo most about this? And the people who know the most and who've studied the most, who talk about obsessed the most about it are the Hawks. It always is that way. Um, and so that's the problem. Everyone you go to is going to be the Hawks. So uh, the neocons lost the 2000 uh, primary uh, campaign. And we've all forgotten about this. Um, it's uh, in my uh, biography of, of John McCain and plays kind of a central role. But in the summer of 2001, Bill Crystal, the Weekly Standard, all these kind of people, they were talking about starting a third party. They're like, you know, screw it. Uh, we've lost. We've lost the long right. fight here. We don't like this, these people anymore. We should maybe uh, go towards something that's uh, the sort of Teddy uh, Roosevelt bull moose style party. They're reserving domain names, the whole bit. And then 9-11 happens and George W. Bush looks around and says, okay, who's been thinking about you know Islam, Afghanistan, and Iraq? And Bill Kristol and Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld all raised their hands <laughs> and uh, – uh, and suddenly that's the direction that we go to. So um, that was always going to be the problem. And so I'm very disappointed in uh, Trump in Afghanistan because he said things even while he was president. Like, we've been there for 17 years. Why? That's a hell of a good question. I want him to yeah. answer that question yeah. with the reality of it, which is that we cannot face we the, the, that same establishment. And I share some of their values about various things, including uh, some of their criticisms of Donald Trump. But... That very establishment cannot honestly face the fallacy of sunken costs when it comes to American blood. It just they, it makes them shudder too much. I don't know what, and they need to. They need to grapple with that. We can't stay there forever. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things that that always really perplexed me was that you know, as as much as Donald Trump during the campaign trail, as he was, and you are right, he was the the lesser pro-war candidate than Hillary Clinton was. Um, he was still very much a strongman type candidate, and he was st very much still a, a an authority type candidate. So when push comes to shove, always whenever it's peacetime, that's easy to say, well, we need to you know withdraw from this and leave this. But when push really comes to shove, he's he's got the the big guns when it comes to it, and that's what he really campaigned on. So of course he's he's going to go after that. Yeah, I mean, I saw someone uh, remark after the Afghanistan speech that in every theater that Obama was operating in, Yemen, whatever the hell, um, mm -hmm. or just the drone program in general, uh, Trump has now increased in each one, the amount of bombing, the amount of involvement everywhere. So, uh, so much for all that. I recall, and here now I will stop uh, pretending to be kind to my gullible anti-war libertarian <laughs> friends, but uh, I forget when it was. I think it was in 2015. Rand Paul did this backfiring troll maneuver where he said, um, you know what? I think that we should increase military spending by $90 billion over two years. Basically kind of restore the cuts uh, made during the sequestration uh, cuts on military. But I'm going to do it because uh, Marco Rubio – who they, they were competitive back then. Marco Rubio, right. who's a, a hawk's hawk, uh, had just kind of a no strings attached increase on the table uh, of the same amount. And Rand Paul says, I'll do that, but I will also come up with $90 billion in uh, cuts to offset it, right? So right. it was sort of a, a troll maneuver to point out that Rubio uh, can't be considered a limited government candidate because he's always writing blank checks for the military. This was greeted... At antiwar.com, a lot of different places, a lot of uh, reason readers and, and probably a couple of writers as well 
with just howls of how dare you outrage and my god he sold out and the neocons got to him and all this kind of stuff yeah i remember that very very well which i think was a misreading at the time well did you watch mike pence last night uh (laughs) warm up the crowd what did he brag about biggest military spending increase that we've had in 10 years i don't think it probably is that uh but that's what he was bragging on that's what y'all signed up for those people and there i know many of them who decided that Rand Paul was a big fat sellout, but Donald Trump is where it's at on dismantling, you know, the war machine? Uh, no, uh, you you got played, and I think some of it too is that some of those people share the aforementioned kind of sense of apocalypticism. Some of them emanate from the kind of Pat Buchanan uh, paleo conservative. Uh, 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 effort in the early 90s and even for your older and more weirdly library curious uh listeners out there the uh murray rothbard lou rockwell late 80s paleo libertarianism um flourish which i don't think was a, a high watermark for anybody involved um th- those things were more based in kind of a cultural nationalism um that look a lot like uh modern uh trumpism and so i think kind of the cultural pathway led that people to be more um, sympathetic to uh, Trump's worldview, the Trump-Bannon worldview, and also kind of gleeful at the reaction that it caused to those awful transnational elites and cosmopolitan libertarian, you know, cocktail drinkers in Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, recently, um, Cory Booker introduced uh, an, uh, a basically a weed legalization bill. Uh, And obviously a lot of people on the right, not happy. Um, A lot of people on the left were very happy, but there was a little bit, especially among libertarians, obviously, because this is uh, what, better or worse, we're probably known for the most, uh, is uh, weed legalization. Do you think that there's going to be any bipartisan support, especially among those like uh, Rand Paul or even possibly even somebody like Mike Lee who who could get behind uh, Booker's bill? Booker's bill isn't going anywhere. It's important as a marker. Um, in a similar way, uh, Dana Rohrbacher, I think, has a similar bill that he's been uh, coughing up in the House mm-hmm. now for more than a decade. And... You know, you, you you measure the number of co-sponsors and the growth of it over time. Mm-hmm. And so I'm glad that it's there as a marker. It's not a serious thing as legislation. There's so many things that need to be peeled back and will be peeled back first uh, on the drug war excesses. When we can't even get civil asset forfeiture reform uh, done, and we haven't yet, um, the weed legalization stuff is kind of a long way off. Um, however, there I think... Uh, some green shoots out there. People are working on bills. I think that have a better chance in terms of uh, getting the federal government out of prohibiting uh, legal mar- state legal marijuana businesses from doing banking, uh, things like that. Jared Polis, a Democrat from um, uh, Colorado, has been working on that with various Republicans like uh, Thomas Massey from Kentucky. Um, so I think the the progression is you'll see you'll see that stuff go first, but I wouldn't – we're going to be surprised at some point uh, by how fast it all goes down. Um, I mean I'm already surprised. I remember well uh, 2010, the uh, the uh, 
midterm election. <clears throat> that's when California had prop, what was it, 19 um, on the ballot then um, to, that was the first uh, big recreational legalization ballot initiative out there. And it's actually a fascinating story for people to watch in terms of how social change and legislative change happens because this was put together by a medical marijuana entrepreneur named Richard Lee. And he went all outside the usual steps and progression of how you do uh, chipping away at the anti-marijuana uh, war. Basically, you start with medical, you wait till polling gets to X degree, then you do this, you do this, you do this. He's like, screw it, I'm jumping the line. We're going full recreational. California, screw you guys, are you on board or are you not? And actually, uh, some of the bigger uh, weed legalization groups, they didn't support this until uh, like a couple of weeks before. Um, and it got to what, 46%, I want to say? Uh, uh, 47, around there. Um, it failed, and uh, I just remember being at um, Rob Campia's house, the uh, Marijuana Policy Project uh, director in uh, Washington. I, I, you know what? I might have... I might have sampled some of the product uh, that night. It's unclear. <laughs> I, 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 all I know is that I had a difficult Not time really uh, making, sure, but you know, making a train the, the next morning. But I was <laughs> I was despondent. I thought it was done. Like that's as close as we came. We went up the hill, and then the big boulder fell on us, and it's all all going to go back. When in fact, um, I think that we can point to that and say that his Richard Lee's insistence on jumping the line and forcing that issue was the thing that made. Colorado and Washington in 2012 uh, possible because suddenly like uh, screw your you know slow and steady progression here things can go in a hurry we've got a quarter of the country lives in uh, in uh, recreational legal marijuana states right now um, I never expected that to happen really uh, at this, this quickly so um, hopefully there will be uh, a similar avalanche we're close to the point where 50 percent of Republicans believe in legalizing marijuana some yeah who on Twitter today um, was uh, was uh, goading me, saying, "Oh, let's just face it, libertarians are just Republicans who smoke weed." Like, really, that old thing again? Um, and it's like, actually, Republicans are Republicans <laughs> who want to smoke weed at this point. This is, yeah. you know, a majority of Americans under the age of fifty. Right. Um, and actually, now I think it's the majority of Americans. Period are in favor of legalizing weed. So, um, I think it'll happen quickly. The Booker thing is not going to happen. But I think stuff like that is important to get out there as a marker. He's, I don't, I've never understood what the phrase Overton window means, but I think this, uh, this, you know, that does it. Uh, that, that is, a uh, you're widening the boundaries of what we can think of is acceptable legislative discourse out there. And that's a good thing. Um, so I, I want to switch gears to a little bit more of a personal side. Um, what is the biggest issue for you? that um, has completely changed you on uh, and how it has affected your worldview. What do you mean changed me on? Cha changed your ideology uh, from, from one side to another. Um, probably uh, like uh, when people were telling me that I was libertarian and I was resisting it because I didn't want to be in a camp and, um, and all this stuff, um, the one that I couldn't wrap my brain around was campaign finance reform. I covered the Ralph Nader campaign in 2000 for a far left uh, 
website called workingforchange.com, which is great. Uh, it was owned by a, a, a progressive phone company called Working Assets that had a uh, a political department. The, the 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 conceit of Working Assets is that you'd round up your phone bill from you know twenty three dollars and thirty seven cents to twenty four dollars, and you'd spend the sixty three cents on you know Planned Parenthood or something. Um, right. And so. But they had a little a news a site that a friend of mine who I'd worked with at the Prague paper ran, and he gave me a column to write kind of like contrarian libertarian stuff. And they sent me covering Nader, and I uh, disagreed with a bunch of stuff that Nader said, but his uh, discuss, discussion of the way the campaign finance corrupts American politics, I believed um, at the time in a way that I do not now uh, believe. I, I was also excited by Jerry Brown's 1992 uh uh, presidential campaign for largely the same reason. I, I um, and so th- that was like an, an obstacle in some ways to me embracing libertarianism. And it was actually just talking through it with Nick Gillespie, my predecessor as editor of Reason Magazine and co-author of uh, of a book six years ago called The Declaration of Independence. Of that part of it is that uh, you know when when people are making free speech objections to something, someone who holds free speech to be about the highest value should take it seriously, even if that someone is Mitch McConnell. Um, that's what I had a hard time doing. I had such low regard for Mitch McConnell that I assumed that his free speech objection was just BS and opportunistic. Um, <clears throat> but then talking to people like Brad Smith, who was uh, George W. Bush's chair of the Federal Elections Commission and uh, um, and later became an activist against the uh, the campaign finance system like the logical progression of this is censorship and we'll show you how you know eventually you're going to get to a point where i don't know maybe you want to broadcast a documentary about a presidential candidate right before an election uh and turns out that that will be illegal uh, based on uh mccain feingold act the bipartisan campaign reform act of 2002 whatever it was um and so i began to see that no actually the censorship was, was is real um, Brad Smith also uh, kind of uh, got me more thinking that there are, that the amount of spending on uh, elections it's still high, but compared to lobbying, it's just dropping the bucket. And in terms of the influence on stuff, that's it's much more to do with lobbying than it does with uh, with uh, uh, what money that you give a candidate. And the reason why a candidate doesn't line up with you isn't necessarily. Uh, because of fundraising, there there are st- structural uh, aspects to what they do. So I changed my mind on that uh, core issue, and I think that probably uh, allowed me to sink more comfortably into the uh, libertarian chair. And um, and uh, that's probably the biggest one. I I you know I've I've moved. My foreign policy has kind of drifted into a, a formless shape now. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I'm, I'm, I came out of the same backdrop. I have the same friends as uh, Samantha Power. You know, uh, was, our generation lived next to the Yugoslav War at the time. I spent some time there. The newspaper that I started um, had a piece about the war every single month. Uh, or every single issue uh, that we printed after the second or third issue. I had friends who lived and besieged Sarajevo. I uh, employed um, several uh, refugees from the war. I've housed many refugees from the war. Uh, deep 
personal uh, connections to all of that. And I watched in real time as Europe uh, uh, did nothing useful to stem uh, slaughter by both Slobodan Milosevic and Franjo Tudjman uh, there. And so out of that uh, came away at that time with a kind of a Samantha Powers-esque sense of like the only thing, the only game in town that made that stop was American interventionism. Um, and uh, I've lost my um, sense of enthusiasm for that uh, uh, since for a variety of reasons but that can become obvious. But uh, I, I don't know where exactly my foreign policy sense has gone. So the biggest huge change in me probably is on campaign finance reform slash free speech. Um, what is the one book that you have read that maybe not changed your, your views and your ideology, but has at least uh, challenged it in a way that really had to make you sit down and focus and, and really think about what, what it is you believe? Hmm. Um, I would say the challenge of... Uh, might be uh, City of Quartz by Mike Davis, who's a you know he's a commie, he's a socialist uh, architecture critic, uh, critic of LA. Uh, it's a remarkably captivating book, uh, filled with errors, uh, but uh, it is a kind of rancid, um, uh, kind of Chomsky in take, but much much more artistically interesting and, and written in a very engaging style. Um, that, that tries to posit that you know it's just capitalist shitlords who've uh, <laughs> who've turned L.A. into an open air you know prison uh, and this kind of stuff. And uh, the fact that it is it's so well written and you it changes the way that you look at a city that is uh, beloved to me and well known to me. Uh, I appreciate and that and I and I'm happy that its viewpoint is much different than my own and so i have to i had to sharpen my responses to it and part of that is also acknowledging in the, the many ways in which uh he is right or interesting um and uh, and there are um, uh, many ways in which he's right and interesting i think um generally speaking we spend uh, too much time putting litmus tests on art and even on criticism uh out there uh, and uh, and that blocks us from enjoying analysis that is uh, that is sharp and interesting and just enriching. Um, so uh, part of the processing of City of Quartz, especially, but also his follow-up Ecology of Fear, is just to tip your hat and say, hey, you know, well done. Even though there's some BS, and I kind of disagree with the ideology, um, and it's and it's an important reminder that you shouldn't let you know, the politics of fill-in-the-blank band, the clash, Radiohead, whatever, uh, that you decide is good or bad um, to get in your way unless they're just being too political and, and it kind of bums you out. Um, but, uh, like, to submit art to litmus tests, I've created really, really strong um, separation from those poles in my brain, and I recommend other people do too because what a gruesome life it would be to sit around and judge you know, movies and music based on if they're libertarian or fill in the blankian <laughs> enough. Uh, that's just grotesque. Uh, enjoy life a little bit more. 
Um, so if, if you had to recommend one book, would it be that book or would it be uh, something else? Oh, hell no. He's a commie. Uh, <laughs> <coughs> I can't help but recommend um, uh, Václav Havel's Open Letters, which is a great collection of his essays from the 60s onward. It includes kind of the greatest hits of his open letter to Dr. Gustav Husak, which is the uh, uh, kind of thing that jump-started the whole uh, dissident movement in Central Europe. But it also, I mean, he's, he's got essays there in the mid-'80s about Michael Jackson, kind of apropos mm-hmm. of nothing. Um, uh, very interesting, and it runs the gamut to his first year as president. Um, it will give you a sense of European history that's interesting, but also, like Orwell, it gives you a system of thought or consciousness less than the system of thought. It's not like a Randian thing necessarily, but like uh, a consciousness of what what would it be like to go through the rigor of trying to make sure that every word that you use is true or as true as you can make it. Um, and it's not just some flippant kind of BS arguing tactic or trolling maneuver. Um, that is exhausting and ultimately exhilarating because you get to see the power of those ideas play out in real time through the course of kind of just reading the timeline of the man's life. And it's a, it's a good throwback to uh, different parts of a history that, uh, sadly, a lot of people who are younger than me, and I'm 49 now, which is kind of appalling, um, <laughs> don't remember. I mean, I grew up in, uh, up until the age of 21, like, you know, I, you start becoming blinkingly awake, like around age eight or nine. So I turn what seven, uh, when Vietnam is over and Watergate is kind of already washed through. So like all history, all this stuff that we were taught, like stopped right before I started becoming awake. And all we had was the cold war forever and a big, you know, map of the world that had just this undifferentiated black blot in the sky and in ways that I can't possibly convey, but uh, I probably should in kind of book-length form, everyone thought that's that that was the way it would last forever. That it was it, we were in this boring, structured, strictured life uh, for time immemorial. Here, even Václav Klaus, who became a finance minister uh, in uh, in uh, Czechoslovakia early on, um, uh, an avowed Thatcherite, I think he's a bit bit of a fraud if you ask me that's a subject for another day um he was asked in june of 1989 like six months before the whole thing went down do you see this uh changing he's like not in my lifetime (laughs) (laughs) stuff happened so fast it's incredible um but like to we thought that's how it was going to last forever Uh, the appreciation of that how it how it like crumbled without there being centralized intelligence pushing the finger of it on it. That was the, an amazing thing. Events were happening much faster than George H.W. Bush, Margaret Thatcher, and Helmut Kohl even wanted. Like, they didn't want Germany to reunify so fast, but humans were just saying, screw it, we're doing this now. Um, and so to live through some of that and to witness it up close is super fun. Um, and it, uh, There are lessons to learn, but there are also lessons to learn about the folly of uh, communism and state planning that the left right now in Western societies seems really uh, insistent on unlearning uh, and pretending that doesn't exist, um, and I wish that they would. So that's that's a good book to start on, or if you just want to make yourself uh, happy or uh, crazy, um, you know, read uh, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72. 
All right. Um, well, that's about all the time we have. Uh, I've really appreciate it. It's been a really good discussion, I think. Um, Matt, why don't you give us your uh, social media where people can find you and where they can find you on uh, Reason. Yeah, go to reason.com, see all of our stuff there. You can follow me at Twitter uh, at Matt Welch, M-A-T-T-W-E-L-C-H, and most everything flows naturally from those two addresses. And the Reason Twitter account is also worth following, uh, which is just at Reason. And then I also do a podcast with uh, Camille uh, Foster and Michael Moynihan uh, called The Fifth Column, which you can uh, find at we the Fifth dot com or uh, at we the fifth on twitter uh give it a listen it's a lot of fun and pretty drunk <laughs> all right and uh you can find me at caleb franz you can follow the show at mill liberty be sure to uh, subscribe to us on itunes give us a rating and a review so that you will never miss an episode or an update and until next week we will see you